Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers went through Y2K and lived to tell about it in our 10th anniversary flagship season, The Decades. On February 25th, 2020, at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers relived what used to be the distant future with stories inspired by the theme Zero Zeros. And now our featured storytellers, Ruth Schwartz, Buffy Maine, and Gemma Gaudette. Let the good times roll. It's story time. Please welcome Ruth Schwartz. Two thousand. That was the year that music got disrupted. And I was a music distributor. And the way I became aware that something was happening is that everybody around me started talking about this guy, Jordy. Now, Jordy was a consummate sales guy, thick New York accent. And he worked for a company called Seductive. C-D-Octive. Seductive. And he was going around talking to independent record labels, trying to secure their catalogs rights so that he could exclusively and in perpetuity, and that means forever, by the way, sell their music on the internet. I started getting phone calls from record labels that I worked with. Bill P. was the first one. He said, I was offered $5,000 for my catalog. That's a lot of money. What do you think I should do, Ruth? And then Long Gone John called me and he said, I got offered $10,000 and I'm taking the money because (laughs) we're never going to sell music on the internet. (laughs) This is money for nothing. And Jello Biafra called me up and he said, I don't care how much money they offer me, I will never, ever sell music on the internet. And that's when I knew we had a problem. So I got a hold of Jordy on the phone, I begged him for a copy of the contract, which he gave me, sent it to my lawyer, I said, Mark, please read this contract for me and tell me what the heck it means. And he did, and he got back to me and he said, be careful, be really careful. We don't know what's going to happen to intellectual property on the internet, but this contract states that the internet is a territory, a place you can go to. And what the law recognizes is that the internet is a delivery system. So if anybody you know signs this contract and you sell music on the internet, they have nothing and Jordy has everything. So I went to war, ninja style. Do not sign this contract. Whatever you do, don't sign the contract. Well, let me give you a little bit of context for what we were doing. I've been a punk rocker since 1978 when I saw the Sex Pistols play Winterland. I started selling music shortly thereafter and I started my own company, Mordam Records, in 1983. The whole idea of this distribution company was to create a safe haven for independent, do-it-yourself, record labels and artists who were prey to the record industry. 
And here we were going around again. I've been doing this for almost two decades, and I was gonna have to go to war with Geordies. Well, one day, I walked into work, and my buddy, Mike Jones, he and I worked together for a long time. He said, come on over here, Ruth, check this out. And we walk over to his Mac Plus computer, and we dial the modem. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> and he navigates us over to what looks like a spreadsheet. It's got a list of band names and a list of song titles. What are we looking at here, Mike? And he goes, that is Napster. I said, okay, um, what do we do? And he says, well, you download these songs on Napster. And I said, great, let's download a song. And he goes, uh, 14.4K, we're, we're, we're not getting a song out of this. Well, who the heck is downloading songs then? Well, it turns out that college kids on campuses had enough bandwidth provided by the universities into their dorm rooms to download all kinds of music. And that's where it was happening. So I said, okay, Mike, I get it. Um, so let me see now. Uh, if we have been selling more music in the last two years than in our whole history as a company, do you think that this is kind of like a cassette mixtape <laughs> online where people are finding out about music? He says, well, you can look at it that way. And I said, okay, great, so it's free publicity. This is awesome. He says, well, that's another way of looking at it until my phone started to ring. Bill P said, are they downloading these for free? What do you think about that, Ruth? And Long Gone John said, yeah, give them all it for free because you know they have to buy CDs and records from me. We're gonna make money. And Jello Biafra said, we have to stop this at any cost. And that's what the music industry did. This was their position. So they started a series of raids. The RIAA, the Recording Industry Artists of America, along with the FBI, cameras on their shoulders, FBI on their back, started busting in to dorm rooms, handcuffing kids, taking their file-sharing devices, and taking them to jail. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Personally, these were kids, and these were my customers. But it had an incredibly chilling effect, not so much on college campuses, no, but amongst everybody else who had no idea what was going on, because the message was loud and clear. Download a file, lose your computer, go to jail. And then, the industry turned their attention to Napster. The RIAA with Metallica and Madonna filed suit against Napster. Now, Napster was not the only file sharing platform out there. They were actually a soft, small file sharing platform. I knew Sean Parker and his partners. They were very gentlemen. 
And most kids who were sharing files in that day were doing peer-to-peer. They were just going computer to computer. They weren't even using file sharing platforms. But the industry wanted to make sure that the message was clear and that they had somebody soft that they could bring down. And so they brought Napster down to its knees in court. And what ended up happening then? All the other file sharing services went along with them out the back door, too afraid to do anything anymore. Now let's make this story just a little bit more complicated. In 2001, Apple Computer released the iPod. Ooh, a really cool storage device for MP3 files and an amazingly cool advertising campaign. But what the heck were you supposed to do with it? What files are you supposed to put on there? Because nobody wanted anything to do with this. It was really confusing, and it took two more years, two more years into the spring of 2003, we got the invitation. Mike Jones and I drove to Cupertino, California, land of Apple, and we drove onto the campus, and we went into this little auditorium, and we watched Steve Jobs launch iTunes. Now, all of the major labels were already on board with this thing. This is what had been happening for the last two years, unbeknownst to everybody, right? We were second string. We were all the independent producers and distributors, and we were actually now content providers. Now, we were a pretty motley crew in there. Most of my peers were extremely suspicious. What the heck is this computer guy with the turtleneck? What's his, what's his deal? <laughs> You know? I mean, for, for one thing, I mean, look at it. We're like watching our industry run around like the Keystone Cops, and then these computer guys, they're going to they're gonna solve this problem for us somehow, and everybody pretty much didn't want anything to do with it. Except when I listened to his plan, which was sell a file, pay for a file, sell a file, pay for a file. It was a typical retail wholesale model, one we were all extremely familiar with, and I turned to Mike Jones and I said, get me a pen. I want to sign up for this thing because this is what's going to get rid of the Geordies of the world. I think they nailed it. Until we got home. And my phone started ringing. And Bill P. said, you don't have the rights to sell my files on the internet at all. What do you think about that? And Long Gone John said to me, well, sure, the heck with my deal with Jordy. Let's go. Let's make some money. And Jello Biafra said, never, ever, 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 ever am I going to sell my music on the internet. It was a conundrum. And I knew even though we started, we started turning everything into digital files, we took 3,000 titles, we turned it into 30,000 digital files, we started selling to everybody who would let us sell them. But I knew that we were darned if we did and we were darned if we didn't. And that these computer guys were going to rule the way that we were going to listen to music forever to the point that in my own frustration and fatigue in the early days of 2005, I sold Mordam Records and I walked away from the industry. It's been 15 years since I've been there. Guess what? They haven't figured it out. Not at all. 
nothing's been figured out. I know that when I pay my pittance to download music on iTunes, on Amazon, on Pandora, on Spotify, that pretty much nothing gets back to the artist. You can pretty much count on that. And it's very sad because the same people that I spent years trying to protect are really vulnerable and they are not going to make money off of recorded music, probably ever again. But I don't have a record collection anymore. I've got every song I want right on my handheld device. Yeah, in fact, um, I have access to every song that's being recorded, and I have access to every song that has ever been recorded. And that is a marvel to behold. So some days I get sad, but most days I just decide that I'm going to rock on and rock hard. Buffy Maine. And I am a newly inaugurate, inaugurated feminist. I am a junior in college. I'm going to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, a woman's college, and I am cranky. <laughs> that fall, I had arranged the um, our, uh, Take Back the Night March on campus, and the previous year, I had gotten on a bus, a Greyhound bus in Columbia, Missouri, and gone all the way to Washington, D.C., where I participated in my very first Women's mar March on Washington, and I carried a sign in that parade that said, Thelma and Louise were right. <laughs> And I'm not sure I actually knew what that meant at the time, but I did know this, that when the opportunity came about to be part of the 70th anniversary, the celebration of 70 years uh, from the ERA being drafted and taken to Congress, I wanted to be part of that celebration. And so the opportunity was this, you were to write an essay about why the ERA was important to women today. And if your, uh, if your essay was selected, you would get to go to Washington, D.C. You would get to go to the Smithsonian and do research uh, in the suffragist files, and then you would take that research and turn it into a living history monologue of one of the famous suffragists of that time. And then the capstone event of this experience was that you were going to be part of a recreation of the 1913 March on Washington, which happened to be celebrating that year its 80th anniversary. So in 1913, 8,000 women marched down Constitution Avenue. And as they marched, they demanded the right to vote, and they said, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And over a half a million people showed up and they watched this march. I was getting my BFA in theater, I was getting a minor in political science, and a minor in women's studies, and this program was meant for me. <laughs> so I wrote my essay, I got accepted, and in January of 1993, I got a costume fitting, they put a costume on me, and they sent me to Washington. And so our first week we spent at the Smithsonian. 
Um, and I don't know exactly in my head what it thought it might be to be like a researcher at the Smithsonian, but the first day I showed up, I was ready. I had on a big oversized blue chambray shirt and a tiny skinny yellow tie that had a matching pattern, um, boyfriend cut jeans and faux glasses. <laughs> I was ready. And so they took myself and three other women who had gotten selected to the program down into the archives of the Smithsonian. We went down these stairs in this long sort of blue-gray dank hallway and we go into this room where we're going to spend the entire week researching. It's about 12 by 12 and in the middle of the room there is a big library table and four chairs around it. There is no like hermetically sealed cabinets, no lock and key, and the Smithsonian employees started to take out these banker boxes, and they put banker box after banker box after banker box on the table, and these were the suffragist archives that we were gonna go through. And they left us there for the entire week, really relatively unsupervised. And so we started to go through these boxes. The idea was that we would get a sense of what it would look and feel like to be a woman in this period of time, and then we would write these monologues. And inside these boxes were suffragist magazines, articles that were being published in the newspapers at the time, the speeches that the famous suffragists had written, poems that were published in Women's Day journals, and as we started to uncover and unbox these files, I discovered that my understanding of suffragist history was totally wrong. Because I was raised that believing that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they worked for 70 years, and then, woo, we got the right to vote. And as we started to go through these files, I realized that, like all good movements in the early 1900s, there was a huge rift in the movement. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony believed that we would get the right to vote by having tea and cookies with every single governor in every state, and that one by one, each state would give women the right to vote. We had been brought to Washington, D.C. Uh, by a program that was being sponsored by and paid for by the National Woman's Party, the party of Alice Paul. Now, Alice Paul was friends with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but she believed that tea and cookies was not gonna get it. And she also believed very differently that in order for women to get the right to vote, we were gonna need to ask Congress to change the Constitution and so in the late 1800s, she was getting really quite fed up with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, so she went to Europe. And she became part of the women's movement there. And while she was there, she learned three really important things. She learned how to march militantly. She learned how to picket. And she also learned how to use a hunger strike as a form of protest. She came back to the, 19, to the United States in the early teens, and she did something radical. She broke away from the Suffragist Association and she started her own party where she believed that we would, uh, we, would, we would go to Congress and we would ask them to change the Constitution. But in order to do that, we would need every single voice at the table to do that.
By the end of the first week, I had fallen in deep love with Alice Paul. <laughs> and so the second week, when we moved to the Sewell Belmont house, which happens to be Alice Paul's home, the Smithsonian basement paled in comparison. Uh, it seemed like I was always meant to be there. Um, the Alice Paul's house is called the Sewell Belmont House. It was a home that was built in the 1700s. In the 1800s, it housed the treasury. And then in the early 1900s, it was owned by somebody private. They gifted it to Alice Paul so that it could be her home and it could be the home, uh, the, the headquarters for the National Women's Party. It's a, a, beautiful, a beautiful building. It's, it's all brick. It's four stories. When you walk in the front door, this beautiful set of stairs goes upstairs to the main, quarter, main quarters. And we, these college students, were given complete access to this home. The idea was that if we could live in Alice, Alice Paul's house with her books and her papers and her furniture and her piano, then maybe we would know what it meant to embody the suffragist experience. So we did. We laid in Alice Paul's bed and we woke up pretending to be suffragists. We, uh, we had little sitting meetings in the front area and we pretended and we had these conversations about like which part of the party was really gonna get it right and who was gonna get the vote first. And um, I spent most of my week in the kitchen because I had been given the role of Rose Winslow. Rose was a Polish immigrant suffragist who fought for women and children. And one of the things that Alice Paul believed and what she meant when she said, we're gonna need everybody to get the vote, she meant we would need everyone's voices, people of color, immigrants, and maybe even the men's voices who were running the labor parties. And so I thought to get to know Rose, I would sit in the kitchen and I would conjure her. And it didn't take too much for my theater brain to sit in that kitchen at this giant oak table with chairs all around it and I could pretend and really believe that I was in conversation with Alice Paul. I could imagine the conversations about planning for the march what it would be like to strategize. Who in Congress would we lobby first? And then eventually I could imagine the painful conversations they must have had. Because to be a suffragist was actually a really dangerous thing. The March on Washington in 1913 was the beginning of a very dangerous era. A time where as a woman, if you said, I believe I should vote, I believe that I am equal, you would be thrown in prison. In 1917, after a parade that was much, much smaller than the 1913 parade, 33 women were thrown into prison. They were tortured. They were beaten. And after several days, every single one of them was force-fed because they used the hunger strike as a way to continue their protest. So by the end of the week, I knew Rose. I knew what it would be like to walk in Rose's shoes. And I was ready for my performance. And so, when the news came that the day of our recreated 1913 parade, CNN would be there because this 70th and 87th, 80th celebration was really big news, I was completely Twitterpated. Because in the back of my little BFA in theater head, I was like, this is gonna be my big break. 
And so the week of the performances came. We did our monologues four times a day as part of the Sewell Belmont docent tours. And as it turns out, not a lot of people go on the Sewell Belmont docent tours. But I was not discouraged because CNN was coming. And so the day came, the morning came of the parade. We put on our costumes. We were even allowed to carry the banners that were carried in the 1913 parade. And as I stepped out onto the front porch, there was CNN. One camera guy and a guy holding the camera guy's cord. The plan was this, we were gonna march one block down Constitution Avenue, then we would turn around, march back, and then come back on the other side of the stairs. Ross was in the back of the parade. Leading the parade was Inez Mulholland, followed by Alice Paul, followed by Mary Church Jarrell, and then me, Ross, in the rear. And as I put my foot down onto the sidewalk of Constitution Avenue, I heard the camera guy say, Where's the parade? But I wasn't discouraged because I was an actress and I was a method actress. So I lifted my banner higher, I stuck my chest out, I pulled my corset in, and I walked in Rose Vinslow's shoes. And when I turned around, I put my banner on my upstage shoulder so that my face would be towards the camera. And as I looked down the block, I realized CNN was gone. And it was at that moment that I truly understood what it meant to be a suffragist, to scream, to shout, to picket, to believe with all of your heart, with every fiber of your being, that women deserve the right to be seen and heard as equals. And in response, people turn away. The parade was over. We went back inside. We took off our costumes. We got ready to go back to college. But before I left the house, I went back into that kitchen. And I put my hands on the table, and I made a promise to Alice Paul that I would keep fighting. And I had no idea what that meant at the time. 2000, uh, 20 years ago, this month, I moved to Boise. And I was here uh, for about five years, and I found myself sitting at a table, plotting, planning a protest. It was the early 2000s in Boise. There were no female artistic directors in the arts. There were no female directors. It was super hard to find a play about women, for women. So my friend, Hollis, and I, we were pissed off, and we decided we would start a theater company and we wanted to do this so that there would be a stage, a place, a place for a voice for women and for anybody else who wanted to share their stories. 
And so that's what we did. We started a theater company, which is only something you do if you've never done it before. And so we started a theater company. In 2008, we put on our very first production. It's a play called Burial at Thebes, which is a modern-day retelling of the story of Antigone. And for 12 years, Ali Rep has been telling fierce-ass plays. And it is the work that has brought me so much joy so much purpose, and I am so proud of it, but I still feel like I haven't followed through on my promise to Alice Paul, because if I put my hands back at that table in that kitchen, I don't think I ever would imagined that 27 years from that moment to now, I would be standing in Boise, Idaho on a stage and saying to you with all my heart and with every fiber of my being, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Because yes, we have the right to vote, but under the lies of the law, women are still not considered equal. 97 years ago, Alice Paul delivered the Constitution, delivered the ERA to Congress. It was never ratified. The ERA is three sentences. The first, sentences, first sentence reads, equal rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on the account of sex. And I know I am not supposed to have notes on stage at Story Story, but if I learned anything from Alice Paul, it is that well-behaved women rarely make history, and I am still cranky! So I'm still super cranky. Uh, and so all I can do is continue to make good on that promise, and it is my deepest hope that three years from now, in 2023, we will be here celebrating a 100th anniversary of the delivery of the ERA and its ratification. But until that time, I will do what I learned at the kitchen table at Alice Paul's house. I will plot, I will plan, I will protest, and I will make sure that every voice is heard. Gemma Goddard. I don't know how much I wanted to come share as much as you kind of forced me to come share. Anyway, so here in 2020, uh, I am a wife. My husband and I have been married for 13 years, and we have two boys. They are 11 and 8, and they keep us very, very tired. We are so tired. There are so more many years to go. I also happen to host a program called Idaho Matters. It is a live daily talk show uh, on Boise State Public Radio, uh, the NPR affiliate here in Boise. And in my 20-plus career in broadcasting, it is the most meaningful work that I have done in my entire career. I also believe it is where I was always supposed to be. What's funny about that is I don't believe I would be professionally where I am or personally where I am in my life if it hadn't been for a pretty 
major decision that I made in the 2000s. So since I graduated college, I have been climbing. I've been climbing a staircase to success. For me, that was wanting to get to network, to get to network television. I wanted to be on Good Morning America. I wanted to be the next Diane Sawyer. That was my dream. That was my vision. That was the goal. It takes a lot to get there. <laughs> and you have to take little baby steps up those stairs. You go from market to market to market in the hopes that after you make no money, that you slog through potato fields to tell a story, you stand in front of a dark courthouse to tell a story, you get mean letters from viewers, you get emails and voicemails now. You continue to be laser focused. I was laser focused, I was going to do this. So for me, that was starting in Roseburg, Oregon, then in Idaho Falls, then in Lincoln, Nebraska. Every one to two years, moving. Not really making any connections in those places, just head to the ground, moving up those stairs so that I could eventually, by my 30s, be at the network because women have a shelf life in this industry. And then at the end of 1995, I landed in Boise. I was the first main anchor for the Fox startup, Fox 12 News at 9, it's about time. Yeah, see? And something happened in Boise. It kind of grows on you. And I started to like it. And I started to make connection outside of my job. I made some incredible friends. It was the closest I had lived to home since I had started this career. And then in 2002, I met a boy. Now this boy happened to be from Boise, yet he was like many Boiseans and had left and boomeranged back. He bought a house, he was settling down, he was, quote, never moving again. Life was really good. I had a job that I loved. I had coworkers that were great. And I had a great group of friends. And I was in love with this boy. And then in 2004, my phone rang. And it was a television station in Tampa, Florida. I was actually being recruited. And they wanted to interview me for a weekday anchor position in Tampa. Now in this industry, that's not just taking another step on that staircase, that's like leaping to the almost top of the staircase. Like that's, I am one step below going to the network. I didn't know how this was happening. I didn't know what lucky star I had all of a sudden been born under. I could not believe that they wanted me to come and interview. So I went and interviewed, and then they offered me the job. And I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, I don't, I, I mean, I don't have to do these other steps. I literally get to jump to almost the top of this staircase. And then I had to talk to the boy. 
because I wanted him to come with me. But I also knew I was going to take this job, no matter what. Because I had worked so hard and I had sacrificed so much to finally have this opportunity. And I didn't want to live my life with any regret. So we had just moved in together and I had to take a deep breath, put my big girl panties on, and I had to tell him I got the job. I also had to tell him I was gonna take the job. And I was just hoping and praying that he would say yes. Not only did he say yes, he took another bar exam in Florida. Yeah, because there's no reciprocity in the state of Florida. That's love. Why he did not put a ring on it at that point, I don't know. <laughs> that took a little while longer. We moved to Florida and we get to Tampa. And this is a major market and I am making some major money and I'm covering major stories. In 2004, we had a presidential election, <laughs> Carrie Bush. I interviewed former Senator John Kerry. I interviewed former President George W. Bush. Presidential candidates used to not come to Idaho. They're coming now, but they didn't then. This was a whole new world. And then I covered NASA's return to flight after the Columbia disaster. I covered one of the largest right to life cases in the United States, Terry Schiavo. And then there were hurricanes. There was Francis, Matthew, Ivan, Rita, Wilma, Katrina. I could go on. We were there the year it went into the Greek alphabet. There is this thing called hurricane fatigue. They all run together. I also interviewed celebrities because when you were at that major of a market, celebrities come into your station and they want you to interview them so they can talk about their latest and greatest thing. This was the type of news that I was getting the opportunity to cover. And it was, from a professional standpoint, pretty phenomenal to be in that, especially to be in a presidential election because this was the first election after the whole hanging Chad thing and all eyes were on Florida because of the hanging chads, but also because at that time, the presidential election was coming down to the state of Florida. Who would win was based on who would take Florida. I had never been in a situation like that where you could truly be in the midst of storytelling where a presidential election mattered that much. Also, it was the first time that I voted for a presidential, in a presidential election where like my, I felt like my vote actually counted. And in fact, I, I kind of had a little bit of hyperventilation going on when I went to vote that, for that presidential election. I, vote, I had to vote in a, in a little trailer park. And, and first off, it took a little while to get there. And it's like November in Florida, and it's hot, and it's muggy, and I'm sweating. And I'm sweating more because it's an electronic booth. And as I'm hitting the button, it's not working. And I'm like, oh my God, is my vote gonna really count? So not only was it this idea of like what I was doing professionally, but having this profound effect as a woman being able to vote in an election that big that mattered. So in the midst of all of this, like I said, it is 
phenomenal from a professional standpoint. And then the boy, he has a name, it's Mike, he proposed. And I said yes. And as, I know, 13 years in, right? And, um, and then 18 months in to, to being in Tampa, I come home from work one day, and I walk into our house, and I walk in the back door, and I put my bags down, and I step up on the stairs, and all of a sudden, I stop on our landing, and I sigh, and there are steps below me, and there are steps in front of me. And all of a sudden, there was this question, and it was like, why am I so sad? And I remembered just standing there, and I, and I couldn't believe I was asking myself that question, because I had everything that I had worked so hard for. Not that I had just worked hard for, that I had sacrificed, that I had given up so much of my 20s and part of my 30s to get to this point, and I was sad. So my first question, so I sit down on the landing. My first question is, well, do I not want to get married? I mean, do I not want to marry Mike? Like, and I'm like, no, I want to marry Mike. I, I want to get married. So okay, check that off. I want to get married. Got that. And then it was, you know, do I, do I like our house? Yeah, I like our house. Do I like Florida? I could take or leave Florida. <laughs> then it was, do I like my job? And all of a sudden, I realized I like what I do. I don't like doing it at this level. And that was a punch in the gut because I was actually also getting interest from a network. All of a sudden, I could be the next Diane Sawyer. As I'm sitting on those stairs, I didn't want to be the next Diane Sawyer. I didn't know what I want. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew that this was not fitting who I was anymore. I finally had the talent, I had the experience, but I didn't have the ambition to do that anymore, or the ambition at least that I thought I should have. And as I am going through these questions, I ask myself, is there anything about this that you like? The paycheck. I like the money. But I knew that wasn't enough. And then I asked myself, if there was anywhere you could go or anywhere you could be, if you could land anywhere, where would it be? And like that, Boise. Now I'm thinking, are you kidding? I mean, I just dragged this guy across the country 18 months ago. We bought a house. We're getting married. This must be an early midlife crisis. Because how in the world? He took a bar exam, people. And I'm going to ask him to go back to Boise? So I have to have another conversation. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, baby, I'll go anywhere with you.
You want to go to Chicago? We'll go to Chicago. You want to go to Denver? We'll go to Denver. You want to go to the network? Go to New York? We'll go to New York. I'll take another bar exam. I've passed three of them. I mean, what's one more? Like, let's go. So he was so encouraging that I thought it would be a great idea to tell my colleagues that I was thinking of going back to Boise. Every single person I told did not have the same reaction that he did. I was told, are you crazy? This is career suicide. You have scrambled eggs for brains. What are you doing? You will never get to the network. You will never be successful in this industry. If you go back to Boise, what are you doing? You are almost there. You are almost at the top of that staircase. What are you doing? And I realized in that moment, I didn't have to explain to anyone what I was doing. I just knew that I needed to try it on. So Mike and I were coming back to Boise. We had a trip planned because we were getting married here. So we'd get engagement pictures, you know, all that. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? Before you make any rash decision, let's go and try it on. We'll be there for a week. Let's just go. Let's see how it feels. And I was like, you know, that's, that's a good plan. And, and you're stuck with me now, so you got to deal with the crazy. So let's go try it on. So we fly to Boise, and we land at night. And for some reason, they didn't have the jetway out for us. We had to walk down the stairs onto the tarmac. And the doors open, and that cool, desert, dry air <laughs> hit you. My hair looked good again. (laughs) I wasn't all sweaty. And I walked down those stairs. And the moment my foot hit the ground, an electric shock went through my body. And I knew I was home. And I never looked back. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and our show sponsor, the Idaho Writers Guild. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was DJ K Chef. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.